All right, so we begin. Uh, last time we were together, we were in chapter 4 of Zechariah. And that was the chapter in which uh, Zechariah is awakened by an interpreting angel. Um, and the angel sort of shakes him awake and says, Tell me, what do you see? And before him, before the prophet, stood this solid gold lampstand with the big gold bowl on top of it and seven lamp, uh, lamps set around beneath it. And in each lamp there, was four, uh, there were seven creases or spouts or something like that uh, into which was laid a wick. And when all those wicks were alight, you have 49 flames burning. And it would have been a dazzling thing with all that gold and all that light. The two olive trees standing to the right and to the left of the, of the lampstand um, were pouring golden oil through a pipe from their ripe clusters into that large bowl on top of the, the lampstand. Now, this is a picture of perpetual harvest and supernatural provision. That just doesn't happen in the natural. Okay? So the Lord sent a message to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, grandson of the last sitting king of Judah. So Zerubbabel is a, pre, uh, is a prince, uh, but he's busy as an administrator overseeing the land of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. And those are the very lands and city that were his inheritance. The Lord said that when he finished the building of the temple, then um, there'd be uh, these eyes of the Lord that, would, that had been placed on the seven-faceted stone set in front of Joshua, the high priest. Those eyes of the Lord that, that roved to and fro over the earth, those eyes would rejoice at what was happening in Jerusalem. And nothing was going to stop it. You know, the mighty mountain, if you will, of, of, of opposition was going to disappear. It's going to be taken down, and what's going to be left is a plain. The end of the chapter, the interpreting angel helped Zechariah understand what it was he was seeing. So Zechariah said, yep, that, that's an amazing lampstand, and those are two very amazing olive trees. But what does it mean? And so here comes the interpreting angel to say, to the right and to the left of the lampstand stood Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel. And they represented God poured out righteousness on the priesthood and God poured out righteousness into the marketplace. Two anointed men stood next to the Lord of all the earth. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we too, with our businesses and our families and our various areas of influence for the kingdom, we all are in a place of small beginnings. You alone hold the key and the, and the, the time code, Lord, that will, that will signal the release of awesome power, Lord, where you revive the church and you awaken the lost. And Lord, the lost are going to be awakened to your love and mercy in Christ that has to be chosen over your wrath and your judgment. Lord, please prepare us, spirit, soul, and body, for that challenge and the opportunity to see the kingdom expand exponentially and swiftly. Come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, find your, your Zechariah texts. 
We're in chapter 5. We'll be adding the 6th and 7th vision to our understanding of this book. From gazing at the golden lampstand and the two olive trees that glow with 49 lights, um, Zechariah lifts up his eyes again, and he looks and he sees a flying scroll. Now, we've had movies about flying carpets, but this was a flying scroll. It is elevated off the ground. It's, it is held by nothing. It's just there in front of him. And uh, the Hebrew word for scroll is Megillah or Megillah. <clears throat> the interpreting angel asks the prophet what he sees, and be, you know, there it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a scroll that's hanging in the air. A Hebrew scroll is, uh, is very different from what the, the scrolls that the Egyptians did. The Egyptians used papyrus, but Hebrew scrolls were made out of vellum. And vellum is, is a, a leather byproduct, if you will. And it was usually made from uh, kosher baby animals, preferably a kid or a calf or a lamb. And then when the, the, the little animal was, was, was skinned, it was, it was cured. The skin was cured. And the, the hair was scraped off of it. It was softened. And then when it was finally all cured, it was laid out flat on a surface, and they split it horizontally. They had these, these kind of half-moon knives that they used to split the vellum and to get sheet after sheet out of one piece of leather. And then, then once it was, it was all prepared for that, it was ponced. I'm sure some of you, this has happened to you personally, where you're rubbed with a flat stone. Or at least it feels like that. It, it, it essentially, by massaging this piece of vellum, it made it ready to receive the ink. And those sheets of vellum then were cut to size, and they were stitched together with, um, with thread that was made from kosher animal veins. And then on each end of that piece of scroll was a, a taller, double-handed, wooden spindle, if you would. And so the beginning of the scroll was attached on the front end, and the end of the scroll was attached to the one on the right hand. So there's two of these. You did not want your hands to touch the vellum because hands are just naturally moist and have some oils. And if you, over the centuries, you're going to discolor that document badly. So all the handles, that's what the handles are for, to get hold of it and be able to unroll it and spread it out. We know that Jesus requested the Isaiah scroll when he began his ministry in Nazareth in the synagogue. And so when he received the Isaiah scroll, he unrolled it and rolled it and rolled it until he, he got to Isaiah 61, and there he read. Now, vellum is still used today for all of Parliament's documentation in Great Britain and in Ireland. Everything goes on to vellum. It doesn't go on to paper. Yep. Isn't that amazing? Okay. The longest ancient scroll that, is, that we know of is called the Great Isaiah Scroll. It was uh, lifted out of a cave in the late 1940s with the Dead Sea Scrolls. It came out of a cave in the, in the Judean wilderness uh, hillsides. Uh, it was above the little settlement called Qumran, above the Dead Sea. That Isaiah Scroll is 24 feet long. That's about from here to here to that wall, Okay. 24 feet long, 10 and a half inches high. Okay, and it was, it's on the same wooden spindles. What Zechariah saw was a scroll that was 20 cubits long and, 50, and 10 cubits tall. 
our best understanding of the cubit measurement is it goes from the point of a, an average man's uh, point of the elbow to the tip of the middle finger, and it's been standardized at 18 inches. So what Zechariah saw was this scroll hanging in midair, 30 feet long. Okay, that's that's long. That's from about where Jonathan is sitting to the wall. Okay, 30 feet long and 15 feet high, and it's not suspended by anything. It's just there. Additionally, the word flying indicates it's moving. It's not static. Okay? Such a scroll never existed in the natural. The interpreting angel then tells the prophet what the flying scroll means. Quote, This is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Surely everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on one side, and everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. Now the angel says that those who had, who had broken the covenant, who had disobeyed the Ten Commandments, were under a curse. The thief breaks the Eighth Commandment, and the one who swears falsely, who, who gives false witness, he does it in the name of the Lord. It's like putting your hand on the Bible and saying, everything I say is going to be true. <laughs> you know, okay? The one who's done that, who has given false witness in the name of the Lord, they break the third commandment. <clears throat> the former wrongs his neighbor, and the latter it uh, just basically lifts up a blatant disregard for the holiness of God. George Klein is one of the men I've, I've gone to to help me think outside my box on, on the book of Zechariah. And he, George Klein says, uh, in Israel... When one sinned by failing to give righteous testimony, <clears throat> and that appears, this, this is talked about in Leviticus chapter 5, or, or someone took property that was not their own. They, they stole it, but was, they were never discovered. And that's talked about in Judges chapter 17. The injured party, the injured, one who was injured by the false, t- false testimony or they were stolen from, by the actions, you know, they were, they were injured by this anonymous party. They pronounced a curse over the unknown transgressor. Thus, this legal action declares the sinner guilty because of his sin alone, not because he was caught and formally declared guilty. Here in Zechariah 5, there, there could be no hiding. There could be no escape. You can't argue your way out of this, guys. Okay, no hiding, no escape from the curse of the flying scroll. Additionally, this flying scroll was written on both sides. Now, the tablets of stone that Moses carried down the mountain after his encounter with Yahweh on top of Mount Sinai, those stone tablets that had been scribed with the finger of God on both sides, just like the scroll. And the angel, you know, Zechariah, you know, sorry, I lost myself here. The Lord says that he will send out the scroll and the curse of the scroll will enter the house of the thief or, and the house of the one who made false testimony and it will remain. It will settle down. It's going to literally spend the night. But in, in so doing, it will utterly destroy the house and its occupants, including timbers and stones. Such a judgment was also uttered on the houses of any who contracted leprosy. 
Now we know that 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 intractable, wicked illness for which there was no, there was only a heavenly cure. Only God could cure leprosy in the in the Old Testament. Okay, but whatever that leper had touched, wherever he had slept, whatever house he was in, everything he wore, and all of it was destined to be burned to ash, burned to dust, including the timbers and stones of his house. So this sixth vision presents how the Lord will purge flagrant, unrepentant sinners from the land. In verses 5 to 7, the interpreting angel instructs the prophet to raise his eyes and see what is approaching. You know, my, one of my texts said, well, see what's going forth. That's another way to say it. Um, and so Zechariah looks up and says, what is this? And the angel says, this is the ephah that is passing through. This is the iniquity of all the people throughout the land. Now, what is an ephah? Okay. If we lived in an agrarian society, if we said bushel basket, everybody would know. But some of us here don't because we haven't been worked farm stands and things like that. So this is a, a weight. It's, it's a standardized weight of, for dry measure, a container for dry measure. And it held six dry gallons of wheat or salt or pearls for you know whatever it was that was being measured okay it was not a weight measure it was a volume measure and then that's about three quarters of the size of our bushel basket Leviticus 19 established it as a just weight for commerce but when you get to Amos the people had ducked and dodged and they had created false bottoms in their ephahs they had gone to smaller containers that, that, and they were out of compliance with the law. They were, they were in sin in the marketplace because of what they had done to the, to, the, to the approved weight system before the Lord. And when, he, when Zechariah looks up and sees this ephah, it is vastly outsized for what it is for. It is so much bigger than this, the marketplace ephah. But the way it was constructed, you could see that coming and you go, oh, well, that's an ephah. And then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Okay? And on it was a lead plate or a lead cover that sealed on top of it. And when that lead plate was lifted off, Zechariah could see a woman sitting inside this basket. Okay, in verse 8, the interpreting angel said, This is wickedness. Now, the Hebrew word for wickedness is harisha, which is descriptive of evildoers and guilt and wickedness. It appears 958 times in the scriptures, but only here is it translated with a capital W and an exclamation point. Now, that may have been a translation committee who did that, but there, at least there's emphasis around it in the text that says, boom, this is as bad as it gets. Okay? In that instance, the woman identified as wickedness is either a symbol or a spiritual being, an entity. Okay? And in that case, if it's going to be wickedness, it has to be a demonic entity. <clears throat> At that moment, that female figure, but for whatever it was, attempts to break free. It tries to fly out of that basket, out of the ephah. And it is the angel that seizes it, whether an actual physical body or a spiritual thing, and casts it 
bam, back down into the bottom of this ephah. And he throws the lead lid on top of it and seals it down. Must have been radioactive. Okay? All kinds of theories exist for why wickedness here and all over the scriptures are portrayed as women. Including some misogynist drech. Some of you don't know the word misogynist. It means woman-hating. Okay? Just a, a given thing, and it's typically male-driven stuff. Forgive us, Lord. Okay? Some argue that Judah and all Israel are too often lured into worshiping false gods, goddesses, and their idol representations on earth. And almost always, that included prostitution in that false worship. How appropriate to bundle up all of Judah's idolatry and moral perfidy and send it away. The simplest argument for why wickedness is portrayed as a woman is that the Hebrew word is feminine in gender. In verse 9, Zechariah again lifts his eyes and there appeared before him figures in female form with wings like those of the stork. So stork wings are vast. There's probably a nine-foot wingspan, ten-foot wingspan on a big, big stork. Okay? <clears throat> and these female figures descend and seize this ephah. Now, the interpreting angel makes no comment whatsoever about these female figures. I don't want to call them women. Uh, it's because they're obviously supernatural. We've already had... Horses appear as, as supernatural beings. Uh, at least they appeared that way in the first chapter. Now we've got these female figures with wings. Okay, and they, they come. And um, it's just possible here that because the stork is an unclean animal, that the Lord has subcontracted the work here. See, the Lord himself cannot touch evil. He cannot be in contact with it. But he can command fallen angels to do his bidding. And so it's entirely possible here that these, these um, female-type creatures were indeed demonic, and they were the ones who could most easily handle darkness. <laughs> Didn't put them off at all. They dealt with it every day. And the Lord cannot, uh, you know, he, he was about to touch all that stuff. Uh, the winged beings lift up the sealed ephah and fly away between the heavens and the earth. They, they, they're seen distancing themselves and boop, they're gone. Okay? And Zechariah says, where are they taking the ephah? Where, where's that going? And the angel replied, to build a temple for her in the land of Shinar. And when it is prepared, she will be there. She will, she will be set there on her own pedestal. Okay, Shinar was ancient Babylon. And to have wickedness carried away to that place and ensconced in a temple speaks to me of the work of fallen angels, not holy angels. Babylon is consistently shown through the scriptures to be a rebellious, bitter, high-handed, rebellious people. They appear again in Revelations 14, 17, and 18. And in those passages, they're called Babylon the Great, the mother of all prostitutes and the source of all the abominations of the earth. That's bad. And they're sent to their eternal judgment at that point. Nevertheless, here is Zechariah. 
here in Zechariah, the Lord is the one who set in motion this plan to send away the wickedness of the land of Judah to Babylon. All right, Forge. The sixth vision dealt with here was the, to purge the land of unrepentant sinners, symbolizing that the Lord was going for purity in his people. The seventh vision portrays an image it's a form about the removal of sin from the land. Just as God gave Joshua clean robes, he is also intends to, to set out cleansed people before him in Judah. Now we know that this is imagery for the people of Judah in 620. It's apocalyptic, you know, it's apocalyptic imagery, it's prophetic imagery. We also know that it is the blood of Jesus, the chosen Lamb of God, that takes away all sin. It is the highest surfactant. It is the one that breaks every bondage. It dissolves all guilt and removes all shame and presents us clean and pure and righteous before the Father. Now, remember that flying scroll pictured as a curse that would enter the home of the thief and the home of the one that swore falsely in the name of the Lord? It is this picture of hidden things, things done out of the view of the marketplace, in privacy. No one sees no one knows, perhaps no one cares, except the Lord God. If you find yourself pierced by this word for hidden things that only you and the Lord know, and I've been there, I have felt that personally. Okay, but if that's you today, this is your day. Choose to come out of darkness in that area, that action, that belief, that practice. Choose the blood of Christ. If you know of those in your extended family or on your block or in your business who, who go through life convinced that they're not sinners uh, and they really don't care what God has to say about that, uh, they really don't, don't perceive of themselves as being out of compliance anywhere, plead for them before the Father. Go to them with Holy Spirit, offering forgiveness for sin through the death and resurrection of Christ. You go to them as a rescue operation. Now, uh, yes, there may be some backlash. There will be some folks who will go, ah, yeah, that's okay. Because God is the one who opens doors and closes doors and plants things in hearts that may come to pass in years to come. Believe God for souls saved and redeemed from Babylon, as it were. Now, further, in our 21st century culture where the church is set in, the, in it, um, I believe that the hidden things are really what are treasured in the heart. Hidden in the heart, hidden in the mind. You know, in our memory, in our thoughts. Uh, we might never savage someone verbally, out loud. But what is running around in our thoughts and emotions? We might never strike a blow on someone who has offended us or hurt us. But in our hearts and minds... We rehearse that possibility. And when we're rejected, we can hold our hurt and anger privately. But that is not purity. Neither are the inner vows of bitter root, uh, bitter root expectations and inner vows. You know, it's just, you know, when you're rejected and you're wounded and you're hurt and you reflect on it and it comes and it comes and it happens again, there it is. You know, there's an inner vow that you make that says, I'm never going to let that happen to me again. And the enemy goes, oh, yeah? 
okay, and the steamroller hits you again, okay, or that inner root, that, uh, that bitter root expectation that says, oh, no, here it comes again. I know what that is, and, and you're struck with fear, and you're struck with anger, and all that stuff happens all over again, okay. <clears throat> Those things, if they're happening, are not purity. We might never be the thief of Zechariah 5, but Jesus said that if you covet, that's as good as robbery. And if you long or lust after someone that is righteous, not righteously yours, okay, that's as good as adultery or broad promiscuity. All hidden things must come out of, of private darkness and be revealed in the light of Christ. The Lord God is committed to unequivocal purity in his people. Choose to be among them. Choose to be among them. The Lord is committed to offering purity into the darkest corners of our lives and into any of the world's worst settings. That's his power and his insight and his ability to do that. Choose to carry that burden and work with his plans to rescue and save. It is all supernatural. Let's pray. Lord, the scriptures have you pictured as a patient, a waiting God, a patient waiting God. You do not tolerate evil. You are steadfastly opposed to it and its consequences. We are simply told, do not touch the unclean thing, but rather come out from among those who do wallow in filth, who welcome darkness, and who live in ignorance and guilt. Lord, we are to love them in the name of Jesus. We are not to get into bondage with their stuff. Lord, help us to be a company of those who believe in you, that snatch away those who are being swept into Babylon. You rescued us. We want to be part of the rescue of the lost around us. In Jesus' name. Amen.